Good morning. I guess last week we were at, um, right, we crossed through the Red Sea. All right, I'm on night shifts right now. <laughs> so I'm probably still waking up, but I think that's where we're at. And then the Old Testament reading, I was just informed, was water from the rock. Yeah. Right? Did they go into the Israel defeats uh, Amalek? No, no. No. So that was. We, we were starting on bread from heaven. Just one through seven. Oh yeah, that's right. We had bread from heaven. Which so is we are. We're, on that. We haven't done that. Yeah. So we, because we only have three left, we're gonna skip ahead a little bit. Had to break this down. So bread from heaven is really cool, and it's a really long chapter. And there's some cool stuff in there about manna. Uh, a couple of the things. So the Israelites they complain that they're hungry. And once again, they're like, you brought us out here to die, right? To starve. And God gives them bread from heaven. So he gives them the manna. And manna, they, it says it's a flake-like thing. You know, I think it, they describe it as like a coriander seed, which are little, you know, tiny little seeds. But it comes with the morning dew. So it's supposed to put on your mind Genesis again how the earth was watered before it rained. The earth was watered by dew. So the morning dew comes in, and then when it leaves, what's left is manna. And in Hebrew, so they ask, what is this? And in Hebrew, that's like mana, right? So it's manna literally means like, what is this? Uh, And then, of course, there's ties to Jesus you know, he says he's the bread which comes down from heaven. Uh, my favorite part of the story is um, you're, they're supposed to go out and gather only what they need. So this is one of their first testings. And uh, the thing about testing in scripture is it's not about like God saying if you're going to fail so that he can punish you. Testing reveals character. And we could think about this in our own lives if we said, like, God, why are you testing me? It's not, God already knows what's in your heart. He already knows what you're capable of. I think testing is often more, it's for us to show us what's our character. So even as devout Christians, um, you know, if you go through a period and you feel like, you know, it's a period of testing, it's almost good to see where your own faith is at in there so that you know when to ask for more faith and more wisdom and these things. But a period of testing is always a time to lean into God. Uh, So anyway, they don't, many of the people, they're supposed to gather only what they need that day, trusting that it's going to come back the next day. Except for the day before the Sabbath, he says, gather double so that you don't gather on the Sabbath. Well, anybody who gathered more than what they need and they tried storing it away, it would breed worms and stink. (laughs) So we've seen the stink several times with like the dead frogs and uh, the Nile. So uh, that was probably a reminder for them back to the, um, the, the plagues in Egypt. Then after that, uh, 17 water from the rock. So he feeds them, and then they grumble because now they're thirsty. So he gives them water from the rock. And then they have their first battle. Israel defeats Amalek, 
We see this in uh, what hymn is it where it says, um, or like faithful Aaron holding up the prophet's hands. There's a famous hymn. We, I know we sing it all the time, but it's like a hymn asking for faith or praying for faith. But whenever Moses holds up his staff and his arms, they win. And if he sets them down, then Amalek, Amalek starts to prevail. So Moses and, or sorry, Aaron and Joshua, they come and hold up his uh, hands and they defeat Amalek. Then in 18, we get, they meet Jethro and Moses uh, gets reunited with his family. And Jethro, we see, sort of becomes the first convert. Um, and he also kind of frames out the Exodus story. So when Moses gets commissioned and gets sent back into Egypt, you know, he, he leaves Jethro. And Jethro was this priest of Midian. We don't fully know if he was faithful to Yahweh or if he was just a priest of a realm of gods. Maybe Yahweh was in that realm of gods. Uh, but the whole... The major line throughout the Exodus so far is God is he's saying the purpose is that that you will know that I am Yahweh. Right. So that you may know that I am Yahweh. And then here Jethro becomes the first convert. And the line in here is that he says. uh, uh, Now I know that Yahweh is greatest among the gods. What line, what verse is that? This is 11. in 11. yeah eighteen eleven. So Jethro, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering, and he does a sacrifice, right? So uh, Jethro's got this great line, and that's the whole thing, that you may know that I am Yahweh, that you may know that I am Yahweh. And then Jethro hears this story, and it, it sounds like, you know, Moses is really excited to see him, really excited to tell him all the stories. And uh, yeah, Jethro says, like, now I know that Yahweh's the greatest, and he sort of becomes... If he was a priest of just like a, ran, a a bunch of gods, now he is kind of this Melchizedek figure outside of the uh, Levitical order. He becomes a priest to Yahweh <laughs> even before Aaron gets ordained in just a couple of chapters. Yeah. And then he gives them uh, one of the, the parts after that. He sees Moses going out and judging the people. Um, so people would bring their problems to Moses and he would do this for however many people there were. And Jethro says, you're the leader. You can't be doing this. You need to select some delegates among your, among the people, the elders, and they can do it. And if anything's really complicated, then they can come to you. But you need to delegate and you need to trust. So God doesn't directly tell him to do this, but you can tell it's a good idea. So Moses follows Jethro's advice and he delegates the judging. And we might, it reminds me of in Acts. In the book of Acts, the apostles, they're setting up uh, tables, or they're setting up churches. And they said, look, it's not good that we're waiting tables because we, we have to preach. 
right? We need to be, do preaching. So they select people and they delegate to hand out, um, you know, like the bread and uh, everything that the church is providing for, for the people. So I think there's some wisdom here in that if you say yes to everything, you know, it, <laughs> it's okay to say no. You know, that should be done prayerfully. But if you're the type of person that takes on and takes on and takes on and everybody knows that you'll say yes, so then you get overwhelmed, that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, he gives us the body. He gives us communion with our brothers and sisters. And it's okay to, to think about these things, right? <laughs> and Moses was taking on too much. So then we come to the foot of the mountain, chapter 19. But we should probably, now that we have the recap and we fast forward, open with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so um, I'm just going to jump into it. 19, and this is such an important chapter, which is why we had to fast forward to it. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. <laughs> so, wilderness, 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 that kind of, uh, we've come full circle. We saw Moses fled into the wilderness and he came to the foot of this mountain. And uh, now it's, he intentionally uses the word wilderness three times, so you have that on the mind, right? There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so uh, the eagle's wings line, you know, I, that's beautiful. <laughs> and then he expounds on like the beauty of this relationship and the, the word treasured possession in Hebrew, it's, it's a cool Hebrew word, segala, and it, you see it in other, I was reading about this, in a couple other Near East languages too, like Ugaritic and Akkadian. And I think it's used eight times, is what my notes said, eight times in the Hebrew Bible, and six of the eight times it's talking about the relationship between Yahweh and the people that it's, he's the, they're the treasured possession. The other two times, it's talking about the king's treasure of like gold 
you know, silver, sort of like the, the treasury and the best of the, like the treasure of the king. So it's supposed to be this beautiful image of how much God cares for his people, but even more so how much he considers them, right? His, his treasure. And he, he's got a high view of his people. And um, I think I have, yeah, yeah, so here we go. Um, the other part of it is Segala, as I talked about in those other languages. It's also part of a treaty and a covenant, just like he's about to make with his people. So the Segala, in that context, refers to the commissioned party in a covenant. So the official representative of the covenant. And this should absolutely make you think of the image of God, because we're made in the image of God, and as his segala, his treasured possession, and his representative in this covenant, we're going to see that they're supposed to represent God to the world. And there is this beautiful, I'm going to skip ahead and read it, because it, it uh, comes into play here. From Deuteronomy chapter 4. So this is, we're fast forwarding in time, but uh, the, the purpose of the law itself, of the instruction. Because Torah, you know, yeah, it, it means law. I'm not saying law is a bad translation, but it very much carries this idea of instruction. You know, that the law wasn't bad. And in fact, again, I'm jumping ahead, but... <laughs> What does God do first? Does Moses come to the people and say in Egypt, hey, if you follow these 10 laws, then you'll make God happy and he'll save you. That's not what he says. They're completely helpless in their slavery and he saves them out of slavery. And then he gives them this instruction on how to live. And we'll see the ultimate purpose of this is so that the rest of the world can see their God is pretty stinking cool. Look at what he's done for them and look at how blessed they are with his incredible law. You know, our king makes laws selfish for himself, makes us pay taxes, <laughs> but their king is their God. So from Deuteronomy 4, uh, he says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as Yahweh my God commanded me. So this is Moses talking. So that you may obey them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Because remember, Deuteronomy, it's basically the big long pep speech sermon before they actually enter the promised land. So in verse 6 here, Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So the whole purpose, again, was that other people would see that they were the segala of Yahweh, right? The treasured possession and their representative. And be like, I want in. 
And I, I've used this, it's so important, I'll use this over and over again. As soon as they do enter the promised land, literally the first person they meet, just like Jethro becomes the first convert, the first person they meet, Rahab, a pagan prostitute, becomes a convert because she hears about how great Yahweh is and how he saved his people. And she says, I want in. And she even becomes part of the lineage of Christ, a pagan prostitute grafted into the tree and becomes part of the lineage of Christ. Yeah, pretty cool. Now, all right, so in the first six verses here in chapter 19, uh, New Testament authors, <laughs> they're picking up on this. And I guess the last, the last main point before we jump to 1 Peter who takes this and applies this to the New Testament Christians is that they're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is the establishment of like the priesthood of all believers. He's about to set up the Levitical order and establish Aaron as the high priest, but he also makes it clear like, yeah, there's this priestly uh, group inside of you all and therefore, right, like tending to the flock. Therefore, doing these sacrifices and representing me to you guys specifically. But as a whole, you are all supposed to be priests. This is the kingdom of priests. We all, being the image of God, being made in the image of God, and having Christ, who is the image of God, uh, supposed to represent through our lives, through our faith, and through our teaching and preaching, to the world so that they can see this. So, um, before we jump to 1 Peter 2, there's one more later prophet, Malachi, who also sees this, uh, this segala being made new in a new covenant. So Jeremiah talks about a new covenant that's obviously fulfilled in Christ. And Malachi seems to capture something similar. He envisions a day where Yahweh selects a new segala. So in Malachi chapter 3, Then those who feared Yahweh talked with each other, and Yahweh listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared Yahweh and honored his name. On the day when I act, says Yahweh Almighty, they will be my segala my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So Peter absolutely sees this new covenant and this new segala, <laughs> which reaches all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, being fulfilled through Christ and the church that he establishes. So I'm sure you have seen this, but it's obviously he's reaching back to the Exodus. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, right? A people belonging to God, as we often translate it. And in, uh, uh, in Greek, so bringing in the Septuagint, Right, the Greek word that he uses for segala, it's uh, peripoiesis. And 
that's what Peter's using here, right? So not just an idea, but also through the Septuagint, he's linking this. So you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, his special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter sees the ultimate, right, uh, priesthood of all believers and applies it through Christ to his church. certain times like some of the prophets like the kings um, and if they disobeyed it would be taken away like Saul yeah. that isn't like that in the, new, when the Holy Spirit so the law is written on your heart you don't have to read you don't have to read it and pour I mean suppose it's, it's in your heart now I mean that's what I mean but I think Peter's getting at this thing in the priesthood because now all believers have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, all believers yeah. have the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And we, because you, you are right, you know, not, not everybody, even, in, even in, in the faithful believers, did they have the Holy Spirit. And that is something that makes in the new covenant, it's a better covenant. Mm -hmm. And everybody, uh, everybody gets the Holy Spirit when they come to faith. Um, you see, like later, when they build the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit comes to the people, like the, the main artists and craftsmen. They get the Holy Spirit. But you're right, not everybody does. Uh, just one more way that Jesus institutes a new, better covenant. Yeah. All right, so, verse 7. Those first six verses are <laughs> very packed. So May Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, 
Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. All right. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to Yahweh and look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to to Yahweh consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right, so there's, I guess, first to kind of set the larger stage, right? This kiln language again, I think... The kiln language, not only does it link back into, you know, with the kiln, they were making bricks in their slavery to the Egyptians, but then it brings in testing language. And I think, you know, most of the time where people interact with God in the mountain, there's testing going on. And this, again, cannot go all the way back to Genesis. But uh, I know we had listened to multiple commentators talk about this line that's been debated (laughs) quite a bit, uh, and it's, they shall, in verse 13, so when the trumpet sounds a long blast on the third day, they shall come up on the mountain. So here most places translate it, come up to the mountain, but as the, the Hebrew scholars will tell you, it does say, and there's really no getting around it, come up on the mountain. So some commentators read this as like, this is the test. They've been going through all these things so far. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to come near to me? Are you going to listen to me? So yes, for three days, it's do not touch the mountain because you're consecrating yourselves. You're getting ready for the third day with the long trumpet blast. And then in the following two paragraphs, it's, and the trumpet sounds louder and it's still going on. And then the question is, were the people actually supposed to go up on the mountain with Moses. Now, yes, for the first three days, they were consecrating themselves. And I go back and forth on this time and time again, where the people actually all supposed to go up there and share in God's, you know, 
greatness here and have this incredible kind of marriage covenant scenario. Uh, but we see whether how you, however you look at it, they either pass the test because they selected Moses as like kind of their righteous mediator, you know, that they feared Yahweh properly saying, okay, now Moses, you're going to go up on the, you know, right? You go up on the mountain. We'll listen to you, but you go up on the mountain because we're fearing Yahweh. Or was it now they got scared and they're like, you go, Moses, you go instead. And then since they didn't go up with the long, long trumpet blast that then they sort of failed the test, if you would. And then God says, okay, now I'm going to do this through you because the people can't do it. So now since they didn't come up, well, now don't let them come up because then they'll get too close to my glory. And just like, uh, is it Uzziah later who touches the Ark of the Covenant when it's being moved and he's struck dead? That's what's going to happen. That isn't like the kiln too. I also see it as like that you would have refined gold. So they were being purified. Yeah. Oh, and the fires. on. Oh, I never thought of it quite yeah. that way. So the kiln is there. You have this purification yeah. uh, concept going on, and the people were supposed to go up and trust, just like Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And then in that testing, right, showing that they're being the image of God, um, putting their faith in Yahweh, then, yeah, they get refined, and they come out, <laughs> you know, who God had made them to be. And it's also, I mean, this, this sounds exactly like Revelations too, when Jesus comes again, like on a cloud and trumpets. And yeah, you definitely have the physical presence of God mm -hmm. in more of its full glory here on the top of the mountain. Moses had to be in real good shape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. gone up twice now to yeah. come back down. He's yeah. got to go up another time. You and know? he's over 80 years old. And I don't, we don't know how far he went up or, or whatever, but I thought it was interesting that he goes up and God says, go back down. He goes Total. Up and God says, go back down. I go, come on, Lord. No. Yeah. I, I told myself I was going to count. I told myself I was going to count going up and down. Uh, and it's it's hard it's hard to do even if you're like thinking about it. Uh, what I found is depending on how you count, it's either seven or eight. So seven is the nice round biblical number. And uh, but some people, I guess it's possible that it implies maybe he goes up and down one more time. I guess it really doesn't matter because sometimes I guess it's like even the eighth time. So there's a full seven days. In something, and then the eighth day is like the start of something new. So eh, I don't know. It really doesn't change it too much, but. And this trumpet is uh, coming from the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And at the so. end of time, there's going to be a trumpet that sounds before the dead are raised and mm -hmm. all caught up. So the trumpet is is there. My wife, who has perfect pitch, says it's going to be a B flat. <laughs> yeah. She says that is the that's the one sound that is the most distinguishing to grab your attention. It's not a sweet sound, in other words. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a blast that ooh gets you, you know. And so just yeah, from her. <laughs> yeah. B, what was it? A B flat. Yeah. 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 
or like a uh, if you put them out of tune, you know. So I don't know why this is just like a trivia thing, but a um, in hockey the buzzer, you know, the the horn, like for a goal or when time expires, it's three different pitches offset by a third. So it's intentionally completely out of pitch, but it's actually three horns that are perfectly off by a third of a step. <laughs> so maybe it's like that. It really gets your attention. Um, yeah. The, so the third day, of course, like you see the third day all the time throughout scripture. And there is, in this case, a commentator, you know, like it, it's so obvious, but I'd always read this as like a, a a Christian, it's so easy to read the New Testament and they talk about the scriptures and to think about they're talking about the writing in the New Testament, but they're talking about the writing of the Old Testament, of course. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what Paul is saying is that I don't think he's referring to the Gospels where Jesus says, on the third day I'm going to rise again, plainly multiple times. He's referring to the pattern of the third day in the Old Testament. And one of the first times that we really see that is kind of here, that on the third day, God's going to right um, come to the fulfillment of this covenant with his people, and he's going to come. He's going to come down in his full glory on the third day. And then Jesus, of course, on the third day, comes back in new glory, back to life. Um, but then, of course, there's the sign of Jonah. You know, Jonah was, and here's an interesting thought I heard. Uh, I think in, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus says, like, the sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And... Of course, referring to the third day, we know that as Christians. But uh, Pastor brought up that, you know, people will ask, well, how did Jonah survive for three days in the fish? Well, obviously it would be a miracle. But then uh, this, it was Pastor Whedon that I was listening to. And he said a seminarian, like a field worker, they were talking about this. And the field worker said, what if Jonah died in the belly of the fish and then God had brought him back to life? <laughs> and like, what if the implication of the story is that he had died? And I, I think there's a prayer. So Jonah prays while he's in there. I think that's part of it. But like, you know, what, what if he had died or he was about to die and he said the prayer or the prayer was almost like in Sheol or something like that. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting take on that. But it, yeah, it's the third day. And the third day, there were three days where they were consecrating themselves. Okay. We talk about Jesus' exaltation and his you know, becoming a servant. We, we say that his exaltation starts at his resurrection. So even the three days in, in the tomb is part of God's saying to us, you are cleansed through my son's blood and being put in the tomb for three days. 
It goes back. I, I agree with you, mm -hmm. but the yeah. three days cannot be separated in Moses' time from the preparation of cleansing oneself to receive God. And we cleanse ourselves through his son. The three days for refund. Not washing our robes like they had to do, which is a, another symbol about washing. Yeah. And, yeah. And then, of course, we wash our robes in the blood of Christ. And we're washed in baptism. <clears throat> so you, you get this washing throughout. You get this three days. And it's just interesting how God shows himself to be so mighty and, and forgiving and merciful. And consistent. Okay. Mm -hmm. hmm. Loving, kind. Yeah. So. The kindness of God. Yeah, Exodus. Exodus 19, it's so important, you know, all those, all, all the pieces in here, and to see Peter, right, with the, the Segala and the priesthood and the holy nation, and how all of this, just in the narrative, like prophecy, you know, something I've learned, it's not just when the prophets say the Messiah is going to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, like I used to look at prophecy as that, but it's even, it's in the narratives itself. It's in the narratives itself. And, you know, I guess last, last little thing I have here about the testing, right? And again, testing isn't to, for God, he already knows the heart. God doesn't need to test the person. He tests the person for their own benefit. Uh, but we might think of another time earlier in the Torah where somebody went up on a mountain and that was Abraham and Isaac and actually so talking about were the people themselves supposed to go up on the mountain and I guess we could debate that and again it's funny I go back and forth because in, in Hebrew it is he says they shall come up on the mountain but I can also see you know prepositions can be used kind of vague so we can even say, like, at least my first thought was going for the other way. Like in battle or something, they, you see the guy calling in for the airstrike, like, they're on top of us right now. They're not physically on top of you, but you understand. They're close. They're, they're right there, okay? So, uh, but, yeah, Abraham and Isaac, they, God tells Abraham to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his son. Now he comes through being faithful because he says, you got it, God, and it was hard. And we find out later in the book of Hebrews that they believed, both Isaac too. I mean, Isaac, we think of him as a little boy in that story. He wasn't a little boy. He easily could have taken his dad. And it was obvious by the time that they were getting there, he let himself be bound. And both Abraham and Isaac had faith that God could raise him from the dead. So they weren't sure exactly what was going on, but they trusted God. But now this kind of begs the question, because also you have Moses as the mediator. Should Abraham have interceded with Yahweh on that command? Should Moses have actually said, look, God, I know what you're saying, but I don't think that's consistent with your character. So I'm going to trust you no matter what. However, Instead, you know, because it also comes, the, the context is 
after the story of Hagar, right? So Abraham and Sarah, they screw up with Ishmael and Hagar, and he sends her out into the wilderness. And uh, so then it's after this, that's where, you know, he makes probably the biggest mistake of his life, and that's where this testing comes in. But yeah, the question is, is then like, he came through faithful, don't get me wrong, but what he should have done, should it have been to challenge God in prayer and to intercede? Because we'll find later Moses, when God says he's going to destroy the people and start after the golden calf, I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you, Moses. And Moses challenges God multiple times. And he says, no, nah, you shouldn't do that. I have a better idea, God. Instead, for your name's sake, because what would the Egyptians say? For your name's sake, just forgive them instead. You said you like to forgive your people. Just forgive them instead. And then he does, <laughs> you know. People are worshiping them, but my, I'm not going to be there. My, I, my help is in the name of the Lord. That's where my faith is. God coming down on that mountain with the cloud and the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet could also be saying he overcomes and overthrows all idols. He is the only true God. Isaiah picks this up a number of times where there's God is real, not like the idols that man builds and then they have to hammer it down so it doesn't move. And, I mean, mm-hmm. this is an imagery of, of Isaiah. No, God overcomes all of those gods. And so coming down on Mount Sinai, in the way he does, should show us too. He is the only God, the only living one. Yeah. And he comes to us. And he comes to us. I don't know. When... God told the people, if you will keep my covenant and obey my commands, I would have said, wait a minute, I can't do it. I need mercy. Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. People should have done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they should have said, wait a minute, we need mercy. Yeah. We can do well, that. one thing I do think, I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a proper, dis- good Lutheran distinction between law and gospel. But uh, actually, even who I was listening to on the way to church this morning, he made this point. Uh, pastor Peterson, he is the local pastor in Fort Wayne. But he made a point that, you know, sometimes we take this distinction between law and gospel too far and we miss the instruction that's supposed to come with the law. So I think the Old Testament, and I think Jesus picks up on this too, the Old Testament, 
the way you're supposed to look at the Torah, at the instruction, is just that. It's a blessing when you apply it and you're in a community that's faithful to Yahweh. It makes life flourish better. Well, and, and it also makes it easier. I mean, if they would have looked yes. at the, the, basically the Ten Commandments and, and said, that's our blessing, you've been given, because before that, they just kind of did whatever they wanted. Everyone did what they wanted. Yeah. And, and if they would have lived in those parameters... Every, but no, but if everybody but could, can. but if everybody could have, it would have made their life very easy. So there's two points. One point is the the way that the Old Testament Israelites, when you know being faithful, the proper way to look at it wasn't that the law is what saved them. They understood that God saved them out of slavery from Egypt, and that the law was instruction and it was a blessing. So I don't think they looked at the law and they constantly said, I have to, God expects me to do all this to be saved and I can't do it. They understood they couldn't do it properly. They couldn't do it perfectly. They understood that. It's when understood? the Pharisees, it's at the time. They understood that. Well, okay, these people were stiff necked people. So this generation in particular, sure. Are, are, am I any different? Well, no, of course. That's part of it. So don't get me wrong, the law is a mirror. And it shows us that we're not perfect. However, there's two other parts of the law that I think as Lutherans sometimes we overlook. And it's the, right, it's curb, mirror, and guide. So we forget the curb and we forget the guide and those kind of overlap. But that's the instruction part of it. And when you, again, I'm not saying that any of keeping the law makes you more holy. I think the proper way that an Old Testament Israelite would have looked at this is that God saves us through his grace and mercy. He's called us into this covenant. And just as he says to Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted his faith to him as righteousness. They got that. So in the second temple period, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what the Pharisees and the scribes had done was introduce something that was foreign to the proper way of looking at the Old Testament laws. Because the Old Testament laws were... Again, this doesn't mean you're going to keep them. They understood they couldn't keep them all perfectly. However, you look at them, and if you're just thinking in like, God gives us instruction on how to run our lives. Yeah, I'm not going to be perfect at it. But when you look at any single one, they're not that tough. Like, they're applicable. And Paul, like half of the New Testament is Paul telling us how to live our lives, <laughs> you know. So he gives us law. And we have the same understanding that we are saved by grace through faith, through the blood of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that when we read Paul, the way we should read it is, oh, I can't do all these things perfectly, therefore I need Jesus. That is the mere function, and that's not wrong to read it that way. However, if that's the only way you read it, then you're missing out on Paul saying, with real application, look, guys, the world is going to tell you this. And here is from taking the Old Testament wisdom and applying it through Christ, how to live your life to where it's going to work the best and breed the most fruit and bring you the closest to God. So I think I, that's really seen because uh, the law doesn't come until about 400 years after Abraham. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so before that time, you know, there was no law, and Paul picks this up, where there's no law, there's no sin, but everybody died. 
from the beginning to the time of, of Moses and, and the law comes down. So I think that, that you're correct in saying the Old Testament people understood it wasn't the law that was going to save them. It was already God's mercy and grace because everybody died. And why did they die? Because they were sinful. But God's mercy comes through and he now takes his people Israel and he says, you're going to be the priest of the nations. I'm going to come through you and show my power, my forgiveness, my love, my teaching, and you are to take us to the nations for them. You're, you're to be a light to the nations. So, uh, yeah. But Israel, the reason Israel was looking for a Messiah and needed a Messiah because Israel could not keep the law no more than we can. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. And so Israel needed a Messiah, and she was looking for her Messiah. And when he came, she rejected him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that, the mere, right, the mere function of the law, even a little bit. Um, my only point is that... Is still standing. We're still commanded to obey it. Yeah. And this is actually, that's a perfect roll into the discussion because now chapter 20, we're going to at least try to get the first commandment here. And uh, so then the question, right? So is the law bad? Do we need to be saved from the law? What's the purpose of the law? And most of all, which laws are still relevant today? So before we jump into the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments in particular, it's easy to say, yeah, those still apply, right? Those are still applicable to us. But then what about like, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk? Okay, does that still apply? So I think the answer is actually kind of easy. It's not like a concrete answer, but the answer to that question, which laws still apply today, is actually not that difficult to answer. Uh, and you're going to hate me for this answer, but the answer is, in a way, none of them, but in a way, all of them. And what we'll see, even in the Torah, right, in the Pentateuch, you have the laws in at the Exodus, and we're going to look at a few of them, you know, outside of the Ten Commandments even. And then you have the laws in Deuteronomy. And it's still like, it's only a generation separated. But... Uh, the same laws will get twisted and changed just a little bit. They'll get reformatted. Twisted is a bad word because of the connotation. But they get reformatted because the context is changing. So the first laws are given through Moses here in Exodus to a people where the context is they're nomadic, right? They're living in tents. They don't have concrete homes yet. Whereas once they're in Canaan, Moses himself has to, in Deuteronomy, tweak some of the laws and add a few more laws because their context is going to change. And Jesus does this so well. He understands that the way that we should read the laws is you search for the wisdom in the law. You search for the wisdom. There are certain things in here that we couldn't keep them if we wanted to try because it doesn't exist in our society anymore. However, when you understand the context and what it's doing, you can take the, the wisdom of that law 
and apply it to your life. And again, wisdom of that instruction, of that Torah. So Jesus does this, and he says things like, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus isn't increasing the law or the instruction. He's reading them the way that they were supposed to be read at that time. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they'll try to stretch some of these so much, and then they add to it, and they make more rules, because that's where you really get the legalism, where their understanding is the way that God's going to love you and then save you is how good you keep all of the rules. So it's really the Pharisees and the scribes that were reading it the way that it wasn't intended to be read. So we'll see with some of these that like when it comes to things like dowries, there's laws about dowries and uh, bride prices and things like this. We don't really do that anymore, but you can still take the wisdom. And most of the time it's that like the father is supposed to protect his daughter, you know, and we can still take that wisdom as like as a father, you know, you probably should be involved in your daughter's dating, right? And you should, <laughs> you should, uh, of course, have a good relationship with your daughter so that when she starts dating a man, you can talk to him, right? And talk about, uh, oh, without trying to make it sound right, you know, right, your expectations and then put your wisdom into it. And if you see a red flag, to go to your daughter and be able to right to say these things. So we sort of try to keep it with the tradition of you ask, you're supposed to ask your girlfriend before you propose, you're supposed to ask her dad, right, for her, his permission. But we don't actually do that anymore, you know. Maybe in the Christian community we should, you know, keep that one. That's an important one. But anyway, the 10 commandments. Let's at least do Yeah, we got 7 minutes. We can do the first commandment. So 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, singular. All right, carved image, singular. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. And the word for jealous here, uh, I would think, um, you know, again, lots of commentary on this one. Jealous in English today does not properly grab what this means. I think passionate may be a better translation. That I, Yahweh your God, am a passionate God. Right? I'm passionate about this marriage relationship and this covenant that I'm setting up for my people. Like the way a husband should be passionate for his wife in all the right ways. Uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands, understood generations, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think from two to six, that is, uh, well, it depends how you count. <laughs> so we have to talk about the numbering of the Ten Commandments. As Lutherans, we take the last commandment, or two commandments, okay? I am Lutheran, and we split it. So it's you shall not covet your neighbor's several things, and then you shall not covet the rest of your neighbor's things. And there's a way we split it, but it's still not nice and neat. And even in Deuteronomy, when Moses goes over it again, he changes it just a little bit on the covet. And he makes it really specific about, right, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But... Uh, the Reformed, they take, uh, you shall have no other gods before me as one. And then two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or bow down to them. In the traditional Jewish way of numbering them, remember, it's, not, it's actually not ten commandments. It's ten words. Ten devarim, right? Ten sayings. So they have verse two as its own thing. The first saying is... I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's first saying sets the stage for the rest of it. So as Lutherans, we take verse 2 and we kind of roll it into verses 3 through 6. But the more I think about it, I, it's hard for me to separate the, uh, uh, the coveting, I'll be honest. So I kind of like the Jewish way of numbering them, but in the end it, it really doesn't matter. The same verses are here, so take, you know, number it the way you want to. But anyway, yeah, I am your, Yahweh your God. That's setting the stage of who I am. And then, you shall have no other gods before me. That's plural, right? And then, uh, when it comes down in verse uh, 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's plural and which means it has to qualify grammatically, verse 3, gods. Because then in verse 4, right, it's you shall not make for yourself a carved image, singular. So if verse 5 was qualifying the carved image, it would be you shall not bow down to it. All right? Now, of course, this is, this is grammar. When people speak, they, I, I don't know how much God would have cared about the grammar here. So you could still make an argument that God is clearly talking, even though he says it plural, he's clearly talking about you shall not make a carved image as being a plural idea. Okay, so that's how the Reformed would take it. But grammatically, I think that the uh, bowing down has to qualify the gods. So you have to split that up. So the Reformed, they... Um, you know, the second commandment's a big deal to them. And they, so you've probably, maybe you've seen this. Many, many Reformed Baptists today, they can't stand drawings or pictures of Jesus. They don't even like a crucifix for the same reason, because you shall not make a carved image or, you know, a picture or anything like this. So in film, when they see Jesus, if Jesus is God, then you shall not have, right, an image of Jesus or anything like that um, in art that really bothers them. But, um, yeah, 
that's it could be a different way of taking this too because you can only make one image at a time you can't be working on two idols making two idols and i know you have workmen that do that but i'm saying as an individual you shall not make a image i can't be working on i could be working on two but they're not there it's only when i get one finish that i have an idol so maybe even that is kind of a you should not make an idol uh, you might make two or three, four, five, six idols, but you're only going to make them one at a time. I, I'm just throwing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, so, oh, yeah. I, I got a question, an image of anything in heaven, because, you know, lots of people love angels and have angels all around. So, uh, <laughs> is that sort of against what this is talking about, an image of anything in heaven, that you shouldn't have a bunch of angels around either? Well, again, you know, I think take the way you read the law, you meditate, in it, meditate on it, and you take what it's, uh, the wisdom from it, and you apply it to your life. The serving other gods, you know, and then bowing down to other gods is, the we'll wrap it up with the classic Luther quote, Whatever your heart trusts in, that is your God. So that's why today we don't worry too much about people like literally going and praying to another God. But then what do you put in place of God? What becomes your idol? Money, safety, you know, the idea of safety. Like even the moder modern medical establishment, right? It easily becomes an idol for so many. Uh, but that is our time, so we'll probably we'll wrap up the ten. I hope I can make it next week. In the next forty-eight hours, I'll have it figured out. But we'll wrap up the implications of the first commandment. Talk about the second commandment, which is very important. Probably just read through the rest, and then go into a couple other laws that are sometimes challenging to read in English today. But what's going on is actually something I think much more beautiful. Uh, and it's some of the laws that <clears throat> sound like they're selling slaves or they're selling their daughters into like, but that's not at all, even a little bit what's going on. And it's actually something quite more beautiful than that. But let's close with prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day and we thank you for giving us your holy scriptures for giving us uh, prophecy and all everything in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, who has saved us from our slavery to sin. We thank you for the fullness of it, Old Testament and New Testament, that gives us wisdom on how to live and the knowledge of how to be your image and share your gospel with the world. So empower us to do that this week, O oh Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.